Welcome to 8020 with Pareto Health. I'm Andrew Cavanaugh. And I'm Andrew Clayton. On each of our podcasts, uh, we like to do a couple different segments that are repetitive. One of the ones we always try to do is knowledge. And the idea behind that is that we'll share with you, our audience, one or two things that we think are worth knowing. And today's knowledge uh, segment is about medical inflation. A couple of segments ago, we talked about leverage trend. The idea of leverage trend is that whatever medical inflation is, leverage trend is the phenomena where stop loss rates go up faster just because the, the catastrophic portion of claims goes up uh, faster than overall medical inflation. We're now going to rewind a little bit and just spend maybe five minutes talking about medical inflation, what drives it, uh, and what's sort of new in that area today. Clayton, start us off. What's When we talk about medical inflation, what do you think of? What are the things that drive it? So a couple of things. One is that um, there are incredible advancements in care, right? The, the treatments that we used 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, we've made a lot of great strides with that. Leeches are not very expensive, right? But they're just not very useful. Correct. Well, yeah. I, uh, they, they, they heal the mind in terms of, wow, demons be gone. Uh, but outside of the, the psychosomatic cures, no, you're exactly right. And, and there's some things where we're doing the same old way, but um, there have been so many changes. The research development component of it, um, we, we can't talk about research and development. We can't talk about advancements without talking about some element of commercialization, right? And, and, and profits and P&L and the companies that are involved in that. Uh, but at the core, advancements in care. The other part that goes into it is just general inflation in the sense of, you know, building new hospitals and and building um, or or the paying wages for doctors, physicians, transportation and medicine, all that stuff uh, goes up as well. Let's double click on that one a little bit because I think that's well, it's always been there, right? There's you know CPI sort of pressure on wages, uh, construction costs go up, and that's been true for the last you know however many years since we've been tracking that as a country. But the pandemic has changed that math a little bit uh, over the last three years, and some of these things are a bit more acute. So if we think about a hospital, I think something like 50 to 60% of the overall costs are wages. Uh, and you think about what's happened in wages for nurses, just that that subset of the staff alone over the last two years, it's up you know, 50%, 70%, uh, just astronomical. And just with that increase, that's going to rear its head, uh, not just at the hospital's bottom line, but it's going to rear its head in the form of uh, the cost that the hospitals get reimbursed for by health plans, whether that's you know fully insured, self-insured, doesn't really matter. Absolutely. I and mean, you talk about nurses, movement towards traveling nurses, the popularity. But as you said, the cost basis of that, that's two, three X, um, just based on, on demand and shortages. There's one thing I didn't mention in the advancements um, is that there absolutely is also a drag along part of that, where if the pill to cure X, whatever it is, doesn't matter, has gone up tremendously, you also see the cost of delivering an aspirin uh, and other things that are relatively rudimentary have increased dramatically as as overall prices have gone up. The cost of a use of a Q-tip, it's you know a swab, etc. Uh, if you're in the hospital, the ninety dollar pillow, um, all of that contributes to it. So. Medical inflation, other things that have driven it, consolidation of of providers, particularly hospitals, right? Um, there's always the argument that by hospital A merging with hospital B, we're going to get more efficient, we're going to have better data. Uh, but the studies don't really show that. I think it was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation a couple of years ago that looked at consolidation amongst hospitals. And uh, the more concentrated they were, the higher the prices were, not the opposite. So um, another thing that's driving medical inflation is obviously on the provider side. 
And then maybe the last one, um, just to share with the uh, with the audience, is on the drug side. Great new innovations you've got, and they're not really drugs necessarily, but you've got gene therapy coming out where more and more dollars are going to go to gene therapies. And again, fantastic, potentially life-saving tools, but ridiculously expensive, millions of dollars in some cases. Um, and so again, as, that's, as those costs go up, um, the overall cost of, of medical care is going to go up. And that's obviously what makes up our, our phrase of medical inflation. I'm not sure if it's intended or unintended consequences, but you think about brand versus generic and, and the duration of patent protection and how long people have without relative or, or direct competition. Obviously, they're spending a lot in R&D and development, and they're going through uh, the, the trial and error process and getting FDA approval. Uh, all of that is true, but it means that their window for recouping uh, costs as well as you know, accelerating profit margins is, is relatively small. And so they, the price point on the new innovations is incredibly high and inflated as a, as a result of that, as opposed to a smoother effect. And so when you're seeing all these advancements happen in a short period of time, it's at an inflated, accelerated rate, not arguing, you know, overly arguing whether that's right or wrong, but it's a product of the way the system's set up. President Biden recently signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, and within that um, is the ability for Congress to negotiate drug prices for, I think, first 10 and then maybe 20 drugs down the road. I think it begins something like 2025 um, on behalf of Medicare. And I'm fascinated to see how that plays out. Uh, it's obviously going to take some time um, to see what impact it is. But one of my worries is that we just squeeze the balloon, right? Uh, that the drug manufacturers need to take in 100 units of of revenue. And if it means that they were getting 40 from Medicare before, now they can only get 30 from Medicare, that uh, the, the 60 that the commercial the commercial plans we're paying is going from 60 to 70. So that's something to, to keep an eye on. Yep. Um, I think in a macro sense, you know, just leaving, leaving this topic and, and, and before we get to our guest today is medical inflation has sort of kicked along at seven to 8%. Um, it was a little bit lower uh, at the beginning of COVID, but we actually expect it to kick back up a little bit for some of the reasons that we're talking about, that you've got wage pressure on providers. You have new drugs, new therapies, and continued provider consolidation. Um, I think it's anybody's guess and sort of how much and when, uh, but that's something that, you know, from our position at Pareto, we spend a lot of time trying to read the tea leaves to figure out how that's going to impact employers and obviously just behooves them to, to do everything they can to control the overall costs because if you can just reduce your cost, then obviously the impact of inflation is going to be uh, somewhat mitigated. Plus paying for what you use, right? And not what the, the average individual uses. Yep. So today's interview segment, we have a special guest, Brian Olson from Sterling Seacrest and Pritchard in Atlanta. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing great. And I'm actually in Savannah today. Uh, you guys are catching me on vacation and I decided to come to our Savannah office. There's no better way to spend vacation than doing a podcast about insurance, right? Uh, you know, most people would say no, but that is actually probably one of my highlights of the trip thus far. So you are on vacation, but you're in the office. Please tell me you're not in the office or anything other than this. Are you that much of a geek? Uh, we did just get a signed proposal for another Pareto group. So that was one exciting thing that we did. That's allowed. That's an exception. I think yep. Expedia is going to add a new button. You know how you can do um, hotels, flights, combo, and just add insurance podcast on there. Uh, sign me up for that membership when it becomes available, please. We have the pleasure of, of knowing you well, and uh, but for the for the audience, uh, give us a little bit of your background, if you would, please. Sure. 
like you said, at Sterling Seacrest Pressured or SSP for short, uh, have been in the industry for a whopping five years, but have loved every second of it. Uh, and I will just say kind of a basic intro. The best way to get to know me is I'm in a deep committed relationship with self-funded insurance. <laughs> that is we gotta how get- I open up all of my prospect <laughs> meetings, client meetings. Um, How's that work for easiest your, way to get it? How does that work for your other relationship endeavors? That's gotta be a great opening line. Yeah. I am very single. <laughs> <laughs> let's, well, let's go, let's, let's stay on this thread and let's go to, you're at a cocktail party. And somebody, male or female, walks up to you and says, hey, you know, Brian, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Oh, I say that. I'm at a deep, committed relationship with self-funded insurance. <laughs> so you spend a lot of if time alone at cocktail parties, head. right? Yes. Yeah. Or mostly it's like me getting amped up about educating somebody. Like, what is self-funding? And then I'll just dive into it a couple of drinks later. They probably walked off by that point. And speaking of being single, you actually majored in risk management, right? Mm-hmm. Risk management and insurance, and then a minor in actuarial science. <laughs> oh my! Well, I'm impressed that you're able to have this conversation. You've you've grown tremendously, obviously. I think we're spending uh, our time in the wrong area. You know how they have, you know, there is. Um, I'll get all these things wrong, but like the online dating tools for specific subsets, right? There's like the general one. Uh, there's one I think for farmers. There's one for people who are at the airport at the same time. We need we need to create the what which which one's that? Yeah, exactly. Farmers how, only. How, what? No, he's no, about the, the airport, airport one. one. How yeah. do you know about such things? How I, do I know? live in the southeast. No. So we need one. He's talking about me. We need one for the insurance uh, industry. I think we're people who majored in risk management in college. Have you ever heard of the Self Insurance Institute of America? That's essentially what we're talking about here. Is SIA is the <laughs> dating pool for <laughs> insurance folks, especially with the launch of the Future Leaders Program couple of years ago. Speaking of acronyms or continuing our acronym, you have a whole bunch next to your name. Yep. That's another indicator of my singleness. <laughs> Funny enough, we were just talking about it. Which one is the most useful? Let's, let's be serious for a second. You, you know, lots Ooh. of different acronyms. Which one, which one taught you the most? The Certified Self-Funding Specialist, or CSFS for short. Got it right after I did my CEBS or the CEBS. The best way to dissect a plan, and especially from a foundational perspective, you understand what it is to market stop loss, what a TPA does, all the different functions a TPA can do, how to do a TPA RFP, essentially a way to dissect every component of it down to the accounting function of self-funded insurance. Yeah, we were actually discussing this internally about the designations behind my name, the alphabet soup, as some of our partners like to refer to it. But it is the best way to kind of go into a prospect meeting, a client meeting, understanding the ins and outs of every portion of a self-funded plan helps us answer a lot of the questions that they have about the nitty gritty day-to-day of self-funding. Hang on a sec here. Are you telling me that as a consultant, being knowledgeable is helpful? Yes. Yeah. It's a crazy it thought. Love it. And it, I mean, honestly, the biggest question that we get is how does my invoicing change? Because right now I pay one monthly invoice with insert carrier here. Self funding is that the same way? And when you know a lot, you have to always caveat with well, it depends. Are you level funded? Are you self funded? What TPA are you with? Because each one has all these different functionalities about how they can essentially 
fund claims and stop loss premiums and whatnot. I find the whole, do I get one bill? Do I get five bills to be such a, I don't know if red herring is the right term, but such a misleading question in that it's normally asked by people that aren't actually paying the bills. And then when I look at a company, I mean, we're not a big company, but we pay, you know, I don't know, a hundred bills per month and they're never the same, right? The rent, the rent check might be the only thing that we pay each month. That's actually the same, but payroll utilities, they all vary by month. And it's not as if, oh no, it's a different amount. I can't handle it. Or, oh no, one more account I've got to pay. I, I just don't understand how that makes the top hundred of criteria for what insurance plan someone chooses. And I think it, it really depends on your TPA partner here is what kind of accounting function do you have internally? Because I think the biggest hangup we have is when groups want to cost allocate their claims and their admin and their stop loss premium across the different departments. Some TPAs do it really well. Some TPAs don't do it as well. So all of those functions kind of need to go into how you determine what your TPA strategy is or your partner. Because I mean, if you do it on the front end of implementation, Maritain will have every single check register with one little cell next to it saying this claim was for this department. And if you pulled it from the said payroll system, like ADP workforce now, Paylocity, all of those can be baked into it on the front end. How'd you get into the business? So funny enough, I did not start out in a insurance related role. I started out in a technology consulting role. So acting like a broker for payroll systems saying, all right, you tell me your requirements and I'm going to go out to the ADPs, Paylocities of the world and essentially get the best pricing and then help you implement. During an operational meeting that we had internally, they said that, you know, a partner is going to be retiring here in a couple of years and we're going to lose out on a lot of self-funded capital. I saw that as my kind of in for moving into an insurance related role because that was my major back in college. That night I started the CSFS course Realized it was way too over my head because I had no idea what ERISA was or new hire waiting periods. And then essentially moved my way back into getting the SEABs, which is kind of a overarching perspective of compliance and benefits. And then moved into the CSFS role. And when you're a technology person with two benefits designations, it doesn't really make sense to stay in technology. The path that you laid out, so doing SEABs first and then the the self-funding is the route you would recommend to people? Mm-hmm. That is probably the best way to do it. It's uh, moving from one on. But if you're somebody that's in the industry that's you know 20 plus years, you probably don't need SEABs as much. But if you're looking to dive into self-funding, the CSFS is the way to go. As a producer in health insurance space, healthcare space, you need um, a certain amount of interpersonal skills. You need a certain amount of, of grit and grind. Um, and you need a, some level of knowledge. We were joking earlier about a you know, consultant actually having you know in-depth knowledge. It seems like a novelty. You're young, you're aggressive, so you got the grind part of it, right? You got a, a, a big runway in front of you and ambitious goals. You've come a long way in the interpersonal skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you have enough knowledge where you could trade on the first two and and the third and still not do the right thing by the client. What's the what's the factor or when was the aha moment that said, you know what, I am going to take a, you know, might be a slightly longer path, but I'm going to insist on doing the right thing um, because I, 
of the impact I want to have on the market or or on my you know my contribution? I think it came when we were in a prospect meeting and somebody had indicated there's probably a million dollars worth of savings on the table if you move self-funded and implement this one prescription strategy. And at the time I was not in a role where it made sense for me to come out and just talk through the whole workflow of how it works and whatnot. And the client ended up making a pass and said, you know, a million dollars just isn't worth it because they, I don't think felt extremely comfortable with how it was explained. That was when I was pretty much like, all right, probably needed to move into a more of consulting educational role for groups. But then kind of a second aha moment was all of the different things that self-funding can do. This is something specifically from that one of the courses, but you can make your company's overall evaluation more profitable based on how you classify certain post-retirement or post-termination liabilities. So this is about as nitty gritty as you can get. Financial Accounting Standards 106 states that any post-retirement liabilities have to be accrued from the date of hire. Any post-termination liabilities have to be accrued from the date of termination. So if you're a plan, Delta, for example, offers retiree health coverage. If they made a plan amendment that classified retirees as just a subset of COBRA, that would basically knock out all of the accrued liability that they have to, they have currently from the date of hire all the way just to the date of termination. Less liability makes their company valuation go up. You can't make that type of amendment when you're fully insured. And as you know, I think on each of these uh, podcasts, we do a segment called, you know, they're a knucklehead when, and it's just an exit, you know, when we talk about things we see in the industry and like, wow, that person really doesn't know what they're doing. But let's go through the opposite direction. If there is one thing that you and this is you wearing the hat on behalf of all the employers that are out there, not you wearing the hat as competing with these people, right? So if you're being altruistic, what's one thing that you wish every insurance broker knew that most don't? Having high claims does not knock you out from being self-funded. If you have a 106, 120% loss ratio year over year in a fully insured environment, and you're thinking, all right, that knocks my client out from being self-funded. Wrong way to think about it is, are those high claims manageable? Can you implement a program that turns a $26,000 a month Stellar drug into $0 a month? I mean, for example, we had the group, we're moving into the captive. One drug, $26,000 a month, specific to cystic fibrosis. It was a reason for two years of consistent double-digit renewal increases. One program implemented projected savings was over like $400,000. As a student of the industry, is there something that you're starting to do today, you do a little bit of today from a risk management advisory capacity uh, that you think you'll be doing a whole lot more of two or three years down the road? Evaluating narrow networks. So for groups, I mean, this is kind of a health insurance overarching evolution is, you know, 20 years ago, everyone was moving to HMO models where there was a small subset of providers where they had the biggest discount or preferred rate because they were putting a lot of business with those couple of providers. Everyone wanted to expand their networks. 
today, all of the networks pretty much have the same providers in it, a 99, 98% overlap, making the discounts pretty much the same across everybody. But now no one has an incentive to offer really great discounts because the providers will essentially work with anybody. So I've got one more question, Clayton, uh, for Brian, then we'll let him get back to back to his vacation. But before it mine's not surprising, I'm going to be sort of a little bit off the, uh, uh, the normal or it won't be right down the middle. So before I get to the sort of the outlier, uh, anything else you want to, uh, yeah, you want to ask him? Yeah. Curious what, uh, what, what's one of the better quote unquote consultant, uh, carrier sponsored consultant meetings that you attended, AKA, uh, you know, exclude one, Pareto. Yeah, one of the one of the appreciation boondoggles. Oh, I haven't been to one. I don't get invited to those. Oh, come on. <laughs> I kind of have this reputation in the southeast of only working with TPAs. I think I'm only down to like one or two groups that's with a, a not a TPA. My lowest group that's self funded is thirty employees. You you don't know the the great golf courses you're missing out on. Imagine everywhere you could golf. have played. You've, I'm horrible at it. So, as a uh, as someone who has received you know countless accolades and awards over the years for all of your great effort and, and noble endeavors, yeah. Um, what's what's your what, what's your favorite award of all time? It has to be the Pareto DNA Award. Oh, what's that? I. It is. Let me think. I don't remember this. Somebody that embodies the mission, livelihood of what Pareto is trying to do for, which is change the healthcare industry. That is like kind of my ideal path of educating enough people so that there's kind of this crusade of this is how we should really start thinking about health insurance today. So maybe just a piece of advice, recommendation, as you're introducing yourself to people in a social setting, instead of saying you're in a deep relationship, maybe just say, oh, I'm a Pareto DNA award recipient. And I think that'll that'll help you out a bunch. Oh yeah, I'll make sure to bring it with me <laughs> yeah. to the where side conference this year. <laughs> you wear it around your neck like Flavor Flav, right? Uh huh. Um, I'm gonna need a big chain to hold that up. So my question is actually it doesn't sound as much like a non sequitur as it did before that last that last area. So I've been to you know a bunch of different um, consultant and insurance company events over the years, and I've only ever been at one where in the middle of the event. Um, one of the attendees sort of in a, you know, what we would call a real restaurant uh, took off his socks and shoes. Um, and so just, you know, love to hear the, the, the logic behind that. Sure. The dog, uh, dogs got to run, right? Right. Dogs don't got to run, but they do have to win. <laughs> National championship. The dogs are not winning. And two weeks prior, or was it maybe a week prior? I wanted to recreate our success against Michigan. And in that instance, I was wearing no shoes, no socks. I was wearing nothing under said Jersey. So took off the <laughs> under layer of the Jersey that didn't seem to work. But when I did take off the shoes and the socks, honestly, the dogs got to breathe. <laughs> uh, both my football team and also my toes down under uh, they definitely need to breathe. So I asked the question, you know, it's purposely, uh, I knew us to ask it coming into this. And it's one of the things that we love about you, Brian, is that you're so pure, you're so true that you are going to be you. And I, and I think that makes the industry better. 
Uh, we're better for having you in it, not just because of what you're doing for your clients and elevating the industry, uh, but because you're doing it with your own flair and individuality. Um, so as opposed to sort of the conformist, wear the same suits, say the same thing, you know, blah, 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 you're you. Um, so thank you for being you. Uh, and thank you for being with thank us today. Sure. You know, thank you for having you me. You know, that's recorded, right? Yes. Right? <laughs> I'm going to. I'll deny ever having said that. If I could have recorded that. that yeah. I needed to brought a recorder when Clayton said it in uh, the last member meeting. That's your ringtone going forward. We appreciate Oh, that's going to be my morning <laughs> affirmation. <laughs> appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thanks for, thank you for thanks having for me. being here. And as Kavanaugh said, thanks for all that you do. And now for the last segment of our episode, the one that everyone's been waiting for, because this is the place where Clayton or I, but typically Clayton, put our foot in our mouth. So get ready for, you know they're a knucklehead when. So today's knucklehead um, is really straightforward. If you're talking about an insurance broker, um, you know they are a knucklehead when their first two reactions to an increase in the overall health plan costs are to either reduce benefits or change insurance companies. Ignore the man behind the curtain. There's nothing to see here. If we can just divert everyone's attention away from the actual cause of what's driving the high the high premiums and the high renewals, then maybe we'll ignore it long enough and it'll go away. It is the purest definition of short-term thinking, simply just shifting dollars and saying, well, if you, the employer, pay a little bit less and we push a little more responsibility onto the employees, well, we'll be able to save overall dollars. It's also shameful, right? That that your job as the as the broker, and I'm using that word broker as opposed to what we normally refer to our partners as as consultants, it's shameful because the decision, the, the knee-jerk reaction is let's either shift more costs to the employees or let's just reduce the benefits. Impacts, as you said, everybody on that population. And what's really driving the need for that um, isn't being addressed at all. So it's probably a small handful of claims or it's the RX plan. And so all these other levers should get pulled in my mind long before you start doing something detrimental to the employees. And yet the first reaction is let's shift costs, let's reduce benefits. And it's because they don't know how uh, to pull those other levers. And it's, it's, again, shameful is the only word I can think of. And I'll throw a bone to the insurance companies where the insurance companies are painted as the bad the bad guys, right, in this, which they've raised premiums. Well, they raise premiums because your claims are out of control. And if you don't have access insight to your point and the ability to pull the, and the flexibility to pull those levers via a self-insured plan, then you're going to have no influence on what your future claims are going to be. I think about uh, one of my favorite movies, Gross Point Blank, uh, where John Cusack is the assassin. And he makes the comment um, that if I show up at your door, you probably did something wrong, right? Sort of the moral justification. And I think about that often when we're talking about huge premium renewal increases. I think that um, some consultants, uh, some brokers, and some employers think that they're sort of unfairly being attacked with a high premium increase. And there's almost always a reason, meaning high claims that led to that. And so instead of complaining about sort of the the reaction of the carrier, as you just said, let's focus on the underlying issue, which is how do we address the claims? Yep. Yep. And the, the natural response to the visceral, how dare they give me a big increase is, well, what have you done to reduce claims? And you'll get two answers, nothing, or what do you mean? What do you mean? What can I do to reduce claims? 
because they haven't been educated because they're represented by a broker. Yep. And so let's flip to the second half. We said the two knee-jerk reactions. One is to cut uh, cut benefits or shift cost, and the other was to change carriers. And again, it's everyone's favorite thing to do, right? Oh, I'm just going to use my leverage. I'm going to get a new quote. I'm going to get you cheaper stop loss. I'm going to get you a better fully insured quote. Hallelujah. Yeah, you might get it for you might get it for five percent, ten percent cheaper this year. But if you haven't addressed what's actually driving it, it's all fool's gold. It's all just a timing delta. Um, and at the end of the day, you're going to end up paying your own claims and, and go past your first twelve months, right? You you jump carriers from carrier A to, to carrier B. Carrier B is looking for market share. Carrier B wants to show some new premium growth. They give you a undercut price. What happens at renewal? You're right back up where you would have been with carrier A because you get the 25 to 35 plus plus percent increase uh, because you haven't done anything to control your claims. Uh, and so again, just- Right. And the carriers know- uh, and are banking on the fact that you won't change every year. You'll normally uh, wait every two or three years because there's lots of internal pain, speaking in general about fully insured carrier programs, but they know there's internal pain. And so again, underpriced year one, know they can get away with a big increase for a couple years. Uh, and over that three-year period, they'll come out even. And again, the the employer stuck their head in the sand as opposed to doing something something rational and proactive. So don't be a knucklehead. Costs are going up. Look at what's driving the cost. Don't do the knee-jerk reaction that it hurts employees. Don't do the the shortism about just saying, uh, let's finance this differently. Solve the underlying issue. Don't be a knucklehead. Thanks for listening to today's episode of 8020 with Pareto Health. We love hearing from you. If you have a question or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at 8020 at ParetoHealth.com. That's 8020 at ParetoHealth.com. Dive deeper into 8020 by visiting us at ParetoHealth.com slash podcast. Lastly, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you don't miss an episode.